You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to understand these works. And if you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we are going to be reading a short story called The Performance by Sergei Dovlatov. It is uh, an excerpt chapter, uh, kind of part of this book called The Zone that he wrote. It was published in 1982. And so for Dovlatov, let's, we're going to talk about it in a second. Matt and I, before we started recording, we're debating how much people might know Dovlatov because we, we our instinct was no, but as Matt pointed out, uh, in 2014, it was in New York, you said, New York City, uh, <laughs> street was named after him. Yeah, you got like one of those honorary street names. Uh, right. So we're we're still, the debate is ongoing on that. But Matt, do you mind if I ask you, for a lot of people, let's assume, let's assume the case is, is not. Who is Dovlatov? Where, where, who is this guy writing about the zone? Who's this guy writing about gulags? Well, Cameron, I'll tell you one thing. He's a writer for sure. That's <laughs> sure. Who he is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. I'm I'm having this this mental debate too on whether whether people do know him, should know him, or, or what the what the deal is. But so he's considered kind of a, a late Soviet writer. That's the sort of period that we're we're working in, and this will be clear as we get to, to the content matter. Um, <laughs> right. So so he lived from 1941. He died in 1990. He was an emigre writer, more or less. Right. He lived in New York. That's where he died. Um, but he was raised in the Soviet Union, worked in the Soviet Union before he uh, emigrated. He was born to a kind of literary family, a theater director and a literary editor. He was raised in Leningrad. He studied philology. He got expelled from the university, as uh, all good philologists inevitably do. Uh, got drafted into the army, where he served as a guard in the northern labor camps. And that is what the subject matter of the zone refers to. Right. Uh, and, and what it's all about. It's kind of about his experience being a guard for these camps. Which, interesting question to raise on that there. Right. <laughs> Put a pin in that one for later. Um, <laughs> Finally, an underserved perspective in, in gulag literature, the guards. <laughs> Which I say yeah. ironically to some degree, but also truly, I mean, it is interesting to get that that um, that perspective, especially from this era. But yeah, it, it was a good story. It was an interesting perspective. But yeah, I, do you mind if I actually? I'm gonna point. I'm gonna point something out too about uh, about Dovlatov, which is that he came of age when he was a teenager um, or young. I think a preteen actually when Stalin died, and so Khrushchev comes to power, and I think importantly for people from this era. Uh, you know, Khrushchev then you know gives this secret speech in which he condemns uh, you know the crimes of Stalin and speaks to you know the Soviet Congress and saying, hey, this is what's happening. You know, this is what happened during those you know between 1936 and 1939. You know, this is what really happened. It's not really it's not the fault purely of Yezhov. You know, it is Yezhov who oversaw the the purges until he himself was purged in 1939 for you know for wrecking himself for for basically going too far. Um, and then you you have the, the Khrushchev thaw, which comes next, which is the kind of this promise of a new beginning. Um, and so so a lot of younger, more I, I hesitate to use the word like liberal because I feel like that's I'm, I'm putting too much of the American political context. But like 
liberal like liberal not so much in like the american context but in opposition to the idea of conservatism you know like maintaining the current order uh, a lot of writers were or not to write of creators were were, were um freer briefly in that period uh, but of course after you know khrushchev is is his reign is relatively brief um he's followed i don't remember if he's immediately followed by brezhnev but he's he's followed by brezhnev who is much more conservative much more old guard maintaining the ways and um so you go from this kind of i don't i don't want to say hopeful but like this era where there's the idea that we're like oh we can we can we might be able to do more to a period of relative stagnation uh you know that um brezhnev would have been in power through most of um through most of dovlatov's adult life i think brezhnev came to power in like 62 1962 and he and he reigns until he dies not right well he's he, he is at the head of the soviet union until he dies in 1982 uh you know dovlatov comes to the u.s in 1979 so for most of his adult life after you know a brief period when he's a teenager under khrushchev he's living under the era of Brezhnev and the era of Brezhnev I think you should point out is a relatively stable period probably one of the most stable you know uneventful periods so to speak you know relative to other eras in Soviet history uh, but it also uh, there's this old joke and you may have if you are in you know Slavic studies you've probably heard it and Matt you've probably heard this before but I'm gonna, I feel like this is for people who are maybe not familiar with this I'll era. pretend I haven't. Okay, perfect. The audience. Perfect. Well, yeah, if you, could, if you could give me a good laugh, that would be, you know, practice that before and that would be good. Um, <clears throat> okay. So you've got the Soviet people on a train and the train breaks down. So they turn to their leader, Yosef, you know, Stalin. They say, Stalin, you know, Comrade Stalin, what should we do to get this train running? And Stalin says, you know, uh, well, shoot, uh, shoot the engineers and exile the train conductor to Siberia. And they do, and the train starts running again. It goes for a while until suddenly, again, it breaks down. And this time, the people turn to Khrushchev, and they say, Comrade Khrushchev, what should we do? And Khrushchev says, look, bring those, uh, the conductors back from Siberia. We'll put them back in. They know what they're doing. And they say, okay. So they do that, and things work for a little while. And the train goes on until it again breaks down. And finally, this time, the people turn to Brezhnev, and they say, Comrade Brezhnev, what should we do to keep the train running? And Brezhnev looks around. And then he kind of grabs a, a blind and pulls it down and says, pull all the blinds down and we'll pretend we're moving, which is, I think I got that from the Russians by Hedwig Smith, but that's like, that's a joke. Yeah, that, that's roughly indicative of the era. But um, and, and in uh, Dovlatov's own words, I'm, I'm pulling this from the article, um, Antiheroes in a Post-Heroic Age um, by the author's name is not immediately visible to me. I should have written that down. It'll be in the show notes. But uh, Dovlatov writes on this period, if under Stalin, talented writers were first published, then covered in filth and print, and finally shot or destroyed in the camps, now no one was shot, almost no one was put in prison, but no one was published. The best writers, making like conspirators, wrote, as they say, for the drawer, and those less honest, trustworthy, and truthful served the government, receiving in turn access to very tempting material goods. Uh, so you're, we're kind of looking at a, a brief period of, you know, maybe from Dovlatov's perspective, I, you know, artistic freedom or the possibility i should say of artistic freedom to an era where like you're not going to get sent to the prison camps for what you write but like just no one's going to publish you so you you write yeah. for the drawer not out of fear but just out of knowing that that's not something that's going to be just not going to be regularly published right and he was published in the soviet union but not to the degree that he would be after he leaves right so the Zone, this, this, this piece, the performance comes from his larger book, The Zone, and, you know, which is all about sort of this, this, um, 
the experience of being a guard in the in the prison camp. So interesting in comparison to our other our other series on the the camp system, uh, the zone being a, a nickname for for the gulag. Um, and I'll I'll link you in the show notes our episodes on um, uh, from from Zuleika, which is obviously modern fiction, but also Farlam Shalamov's um, collection of short stories, which we covered uh, much much earlier, which covers what the prison camps were like in the 1930s. And reading that in relation to this is is really a stark stark difference. But let's talk more about that in a second. If it works for you, let's talk about the performance itself. Works great for me. All right, perfect. So the performance we have uh, this this prison guard who is working in the camps and he's called aside by his commanding officer and says, "Hey, look, we have a play we're going to put on." And you know our guy's like, "Uh, uh huh." And they say, "Look, we need you to transport. We got this thief. Uh, he's 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 a thief, but he with some the right work could look like Lenin. So we need you to take him over to this other camp to start preparing this play. Uh, so." I, I don't think this guard is ever named, but so he, he does, he collects this guy and they, we, after spending some time kind of in the camp and discussing what life is like, he takes them over to this, the, this other camp where the other uh, prisoners and workers in this play are, are waiting. They discuss, they have a relatively open conversation. Even at one point, um, the guard lets this guy, Gurin, go off by himself to use the, to use the restroom, kind of being like, I don't know, is he going to escape? Maybe he will. Um, and, the Gurian eventually comes back after he considers maybe maybe I shouldn't have uh, maybe I shouldn't have let my prisoner go off alone into the woods, but you know where are you going to go? So they go over to this other camp and they meet up with the other actors and it ends up being a group of um, uh, a group of other prisoners or Zex as they call them, one office worker. The play the concept of the play is that you've got uh, two plots. The main plot is about uh, Lenin and Felix Dzerzhinsky. If you're not familiar with who Felix Dzerzhinsky is, he was the sort of um, Randy, I, th- I think he ran the Czechists, but he was the kind of the head of the secret police. So what would eventually evolve um, in, into the KGB? Um, and so you've got Felix, who's working himself to the bone, and uh, Lenin saying, "Hey, I need you to take a break because it's your duty to the revolution, not only to work but to maintain your health." And the B plot is you've got this young uh, Czechist Timofey, whose uh, girlfriend is um, leading him into like basically being a, a revanchist um, to, to uh, you know being a white guard. And uh, eventually, uh, Lenin convincing uh, Dzerzhinsky to look into his health leads to Timofey being uh, really inspired by that example and, you know, eventually be becoming, um, him chastising his girlfriend and the two of them becoming, you know, bright young examples of, uh, of Soviet heroism. Um, and so for most of the play, you've got these these group of prisoners um, who are all there for, for various reasons. Uh, thieves, I think one... Uh, I, I'm not exactly entirely clear on what perversion with a minor means, so I can't 100% say <laughs> you know, a pedophile you know, in this play, but very possibly. Um, this, so this group of prisoners are training and going through all the, you know, this half-hearted, and this, obviously none of them are trained performers. Uh, the camp leadership doesn't have a strong idea of, of plays either, very much. A, a lot of people who don't know what they're doing leading other people who don't know what they're doing, which, which continues on until finally they put on the play, which goes more or less okay. Um, as they're putting it on, you lead into this, and they've got all these interminable speeches ahead of it. The play itself goes mostly fine. The audience of uh, this is just heckling them most of the time before it ends on uh, a singing of the Internationale um, and some thoughts by our narrator. Uh, that's a relatively abridged version going in. 
but as we often say, devil's in the details uh, in this. And there are a lot of fascinating details in this, you know, this vision of the camps from a uh, prison guard's perspective in the, I would assume this is taking place in the 70s at some point. Um, is there anywhere you're interested in starting on or, or anywhere you want to elaborate on? I think I wanted to clarify the way that I interpreted the crime of perversion of a minor. Sure. I'm pretty sure is ideological perversion. That That's I, fair. I think this would have been either a teacher or like a Komsomol like group, like youth group leader, essentially. that, that was, My guess is that the people that are in these camps are kind of just like, these are like petty criminals. These aren't like serious crimes that usually they're in for. Right. Yeah. And a great, great point to make, which is that the prison camps, if you are, when you usually think of gulag literature, I think you're usually thinking of, you know, Solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago or maybe, you know, Shalamov's work. Um, and you're, you're probably thinking political prisoners, you know, everyone who doesn't get the government being shipped off. Um, that's not the case here. We're, we're, <laughs> as Matt says, this is like just literally entirely made up of, of petty criminals for the most part. Right. And, and that's, so my, my first point on this story is the time period in which it is written. As, as you hinted to, most people are familiar with early Gulag literature when that was like a revolutionary idea to write about. Hmm. This is no longer a revolutionary thing. to like. It's not shocking to the public that these, these camps existed. It's no longer the, you know, the entire justification for writing. I think it's a deeper probe into like... What the, what the psychology is sort of like of uh, of the broader system, not even the individuals, and so it, it takes this really shocking aspect that would have been like, or rather was shocking when Solzhenitsyn or Shalamov when they were writing about this, and it transforms it into something that is completely and utterly banal. It is just the most everyday sort of description that you could envision being used to describe a forced labor camp. Uh, right. So it's no longer this sort of scandalous thing. It's like an accepted fact of life. And that sort of sets the, the tone for the absurdity that ensues. Yeah, I, 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 and I think you can see that in the reflection of how Dovlatov appraised the relationship between the prisoners and the guards, which is like, you know, the guards are uh, obviously ruling literally ruling over the prisoners but also they're wandering around we got the prisoner at one point Gudin, uh, who plays lenin is complaining about how hey why am i i'm i'm just a bank robber why am i in a prison camp when you know lenin and, and Dzerzhinsky, those are the biggest no-termers of you know bloodiest no-termers in our history no-termers I, I believe in this case meaning like a you know someone who's a lifer someone spending a life in in the camps you know those guys should really be in here in the you know the garden and other you know and other earlier works that might be a major moment of you know of, of horror shock and horror but in this guy this case the guy's just like oh please shut up all right can we go on <laughs> like there's there's you know ideological crime is not a feature anymore you can yeah call call that in the bloodiest criminal in your history they don't give a shit <laughs> they might the guard might agree with you right he probably does yeah and also you know at this point do a lot of like you say fact of life and i think I, I don't know exactly how, I, I don't think there's a way to quantify this, but this is something that like, the Soviet public knew about, and frankly was probably even fairly interested in, uh, just as like a, a, you know, an idea of the zone being like this place far away, or, you know, where, you know, whatever happens, it, it kicks on its own sort of life, I would suspect maybe in the same way that, you know, neo-noir interesting, interesting, to, uh, you know, draws people in. I, the, the concept of the zone, though, is interesting, 
in around this time because it's something that is being explored more in art and literature like Tarkovsky's Stalker uh if if you're familiar with the film uh there th the whole point is that there are these guides that take people to this zone and there's a scholar that wrote uh or I don't know if he's a scholar but a critic that wrote uh, a book exploring this called Zona and it's you know about the kind of connotations of this area and the sort of psychological effect on people it's not explicit that that's what this is in tarkovsky's film um but it's just kind of like an interesting i would guess i would say like cultural aspect that is kind of just permanently there by this point and so that's what you know what is kind of an interesting change to be reading about something published in the 80s versus and then like 50s yeah right in the 50s you've got Two, I mean, I think we already harped on this point, but, you know, reading Shalamov's work, you've got these, you know, the prisoners who are enduring intense hardship and, uh, you know, many of them are heroic, many of them are not, uh, but they've, they're kind of living on this, this grand era. In this case, this is nothing grand about this era. I mean, I think one of the, the, I don't know if this should be funny, but it kind of was funny. It was before the play actually it happens you've got all these guards like this interminable number of speeches and one of the funniest ones is one guard who talks about like oh we need here's all the socialist res resolutions we need to take forward you know it's kind of uh, not really commanding tone it's it's i think it's read that he's really not a very good speaker but his socialist proclamations are not have nothing to do with socialism his pro-socialist proclamations are we need to get murders in the camp down by 26 <laughs> percent <laughs> <laughs> right you've got the, this era where um sort of i guess like the the grandiosity for better or for worse feeling like you're in an era of um of great import is is not the case at all i don't think anyone feels that they're that that this is important in the slightest they're just making it through the day no definitely not and i think that's a good segue into the play itself or the performance itself and the sort of conclusion because i don't think it's about necessarily what is it's about uh, you know what wasn't and you know the, the idea of just holding up this ideological veneer it you know in the 40s right when you're fighting the nazis you know you get a little rah-rah go soviet union like you know you you can have some uh some patriotism going on around that but by this time it's just kind of it just seems so pointless in comparison to you know what is actually happening in the country it's it's no longer really addressing any of the concerns of most of the people right that's kind of the where the sort of absurdity falls on this okay i think now is a good time for a break we'll be back in just a second and this episode is brought to you by you our listeners you can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get the access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of that hard-earned buried treasure that you dug up, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions? Comments? Want to appear on our Office Hours podcast? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. One more time, that's 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll also bring your question. We'll do, your, we'll do our best to bring your question on the podcast and address it. All right, let's get back to the performance. <laughs> Intermission over. Back into the... <laughs> prisoners back to your seats 
You know, in another, speaking of your absurdity, like in another speech, the, the camp commander who opens up to play, he's like trying to give an inspirational speech. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, he meanders into just moderate things of like, oh, yeah, like, oh, by the way, stop having sex with goats before he gets cut off, or at least the, the narrator cuts him off when he, you know, he can't even, the, there's no grandiosity. Grandiosity can't even last five minutes before you get back into the banal of the prisoners keep having sex with goats. <laughs> stop. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, to your point, I, there's another, there's a, a quotation from the author, uh, Sherbakova, who uh, from the same piece that I mentioned earlier, which I think kind of gets to the point of what you're saying, or where she says, this is, I believe, uh, before Dal Stalin's death, where she says, like everyone else, I lived under the impression of the victory, capital V, victory. Mm -hmm. It caused a kind of memory block. I forgot, even though I knew perfectly well that my grandfathers were murdered during collectivization and my uncles were killed in the bloody year of 1937. I became a patriot to the very bones, and everything in me squealed with joy at my wonderful homeland. Generally, when I read about people from this era, there's a, there's a sense of import. Again, not to harp on it too much, but we're here now. Right, right. And I think I think the culmination of, of the play is probably the funniest point, if you didn't kind of get it by, by that point. But it's sort of the... I don't know, that's sort of... The reason that this kind of works for me as a short story, I, I can't remember who, who said this or where I read this, but the kind of effect of a short story is right at the end, the kind of culmination feels as if it was both um, sort of expected and, you know, there the whole time, but also kind of, you know, surprising and a lot of times witty, right? And so this sort of piece works for me as a short story, par partially because of this, this very, this very ending scene of Lenin looking out over the crowd of petty criminals, uh, you know, in this prison camp who are in the back smoking and they've started playing cards during the play, which I'm, presumably nobody can hear because there's no microphones and there's, you know, hundreds of people stuffed into this room. And he looks out and he says, who is this? Who are these happy young faces? Whose are these cheerful, sparkling eyes? Can this really be the youth of the 70s? And I think that last part, can this really be the youth of the 70s? I mean, it's just, it's so biting. It was so <laughs> funny when I got to that part. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's really sticking out too. I think it's interesting too, to get to that point, because it really, over the course of you, you stick with the play, not beat for beat, but for a good portion of it, you know, scene to scene. And uh, at this point with these characters, you are up to this, you are the the narrator starts interchangeably using the the person's actual name with the character they're playing so gurin who plays lenin interchangeably mm -hmm. he's lenin and gurin going forth kind of like forcing this this um imposition i think there's a tech, more technical term for that of forcing imposition i'm trying to remember what it but you you've this forced imposition of memory and reality of the actual lenin who might have actually gone through the, you know, what the play is, is suggesting, you know, who might have actually been doing these things versus the reality of, you know, the bank robber Gurin playing him. But by the end point, by the time that you get to the, you know, this line, can this really be the children of the revolution? Uh, you've really, it, it's, it slipped back into entirely out of that memory in an interesting moment, which immediately follows that. I will say it's not an entirely, uh, it's, it's a, a detached piece. It's a very um, ambivalent piece, but it's not. 
it's not a, an unfeeling piece. It's not entirely acerbic, right? Like this is oh, what is our country? Um, I think it's worthwhile noting that at this point, <laughs> the, the the prisoners are heckling, you know, our good friend Vladimir Ilyich, and um, then someone like the one of the prison guards just like just end the play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gudrun's like seriously, there's like two lines left, and they're like just start singing the Internationale, and they do, and and interestingly you know the crowd suddenly transforms as they sing this international which uh you know we've got you know arise you wretched of the earth for justice thunders condemnation a better world's in birth tis the final conflict let's stand each in his place no more chains of violence shall bind us arise you slaves no more enthrall the earth shall rise on new foundations which does bring them in maybe less so on a specifically soviet calling than in you know the general terms of what the 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 song the lyrics themselves call for from a group of prisoners and the, the narrator um says or the narrator notes suddenly my throat contracted painfully for the first time i was part of my unique unprecedented country i was entirely made of cruelty hunger memory malice because of my tears i couldn't see for a moment i don't think anyone noticed um which is pretty close to where the the story actually ends so I it, I think it's interesting to read this as it, it's very critical, very acerbic, very like uh, this is my country, but also this is my country, better or for worse, with all its cruelties and all its uh, all its you know being stuck in memory. This is who we are, and I, I think that the phrasing "unprecedented" is fascinating because it shows like it's a kernel of a kernel of, of the kind of earlier eras of excitement, but one that's extremely tempered by the the intervening years right yeah i think the it's almost like an acknowledgement of the end this whole can this really be the youth of the 70s because if you don't have youth you don't have a country basically and if you've imprisoned all of your youth <laughs> what is to be done another great question <laughs> what is to be done um and i think too also saying you know no one noticed the narrator's tears it's in, in in so much of our literature, especially early Soviet, there's so much focus on moving away from this individual, you know, moving moving towards this this consciousness that we are a Soviet, you know, we are a Soviet Volk. We are a people who live and die on on that notion of the people. Uh, but this piece, uh, you know, Dovlatov's writing is so fundamentally individualistic that even, you know, the, the most important moment of this play is a private moment. No one even notices it's happening. Mm -hmm. No one notices this author's exist or this narrator's existence. And, and up to this point, I think it's interesting that this is something we haven't covered too much. I don't know if there's so much to say about it, but we really, on each of these performers, we went over that pretty quickly, but you really go in on each of them, what each of them are like, their habits, you know, how other prisoners feel about them. One of the prisoners is, is a gay man, and that's something that's commented on that forces him out of most social circles, and he kind of goes into what that means for him as a gay man to be in the camps. Or, you know, this woman, an office worker who has this habit of, uh, of acting like a prisoner. It's, it's said, I think... It's but although it's not just her, but we 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 really follow her, so we get the most of it through her. But the the narrator at one point mentions that a generally administration office worker started resembling Zex, meaning prisoners, after about a month. Even contracted engineers fell into using Camp Argot, not to speak of the soldiers, um, right? And so getting into each of these characteristics, it's it's focusing on such a, a micro level on each character but also each character is not part of a larger whole except for that very that one moment that they are singing the international and they come together as this unprecedented country but the moment it's over he's crying and he's alone and no one even notices yeah i think that's a good point i think that a lot of the way that the work is actually structured 
kind of has to do with what you're saying on this individuality kind of this aspect of right the individual versus the whole and the way that it's narrated is really quite interesting so i read this article by igor savelzon and it is called uh what is it called it's called the third way sergey devlatov and it is about how essentially Devlatov structures a lot of his works and Devlatov this is not like uh an exception this work a lot of his work is satirical it is absurd uh if you extend this to the late Soviet period as well you'll see this kind of across the board there there is a lot of uh vulgar absurdity that kind of arises in the 70s and continues uh I'm thinking Mamlev Sorokin there are some really messed up things that get written around this time. And <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to think about absurdity. And uh, I think that this one here shows just such a fundamental fracture on how people perceive the world that they're in. So Savazan, this is translation just loosely because it was in Russian. So you're welcome. Uh <laughs> He, he says that the main conflict in Devlato's artistic world is the conflict between rough and dirty reality and its brilliant but false Soviet ideological image. The conflict splits the world into equal parts that are in opposition but not in struggle with one another. It does not imply development. It does not imply victory of one over the other. And he continues on to say that the world is split into two half norms which are each presented to themselves as the norm. And... Right, that to me is what is interesting about the Vlatov because it is not about, it is not the early Soviet ideological victory, we're going to win out against the other. It is a sort of coexistence of others that only the reader is able, able to see and read them as in conflict with each other. But the individuals in the story only see their own, right? They only see what they see as the reality. And so the absurdity comes as to the reader, essentially, where you're able to see that. Um, and you know, the narrator as well, um, can, can see this, right. Cause they're telling the story, even though it's not all right. Some of it is left to the reader. It's not just the narrator. Right. So like that line again, to keep hammering, not to keep hammering in on it, but I, I, I liked it so much. Can this really be the youth of the seventies? Right. If you are, <laughs> if you are the ideologues, <laughs> you're, you're, you're seeing the sparkling bright future. But if you're one of the, the petty thieves in the prison camp right it takes on this biting ironic sort of uh image and you as the reader can see both and see the absurdity of that statement and i think that to me here is the difference between absurdity and insanity right like i, I don't know this is just my kind of idea that insanity really it's not rooted in anything real whereas the absurd is and it comes from this conflict of, you know, brilliant but false and dirty and real. And so that's kind of like how the structure to me played out in this. And I thought it was really interesting and I really liked the article. So if you, if you speak Russian, you can read it. And if you don't, <laughs> you can learn Russian and then read it. Easy. No Easy. problem. That'd take you like a couple hours probably. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that that's a fascinating... I'm, just, I'm still processing that point. I think that's fascinating um, in terms of a no i forgive me ahead of time for my extremely vulgar uh vulgar meaning simplistic explanation of of hegel 
Um, and I've, I've just sent some shivers of fear to Matt by saying I'm going to start talking about Hegel. Um, Please don't. Here he goes. <laughs> but so this idea of this third way of these two coexisting but not interacting realities is sort of like a, a tacit, maybe not intentional rejection of like Soviet the Soviet system as a whole. The Soviet system obviously based on Marxist-Leninist ideology and Marxist-Leninist ideology obviously having its basis in Marxist ideology. And one of the most important features of Marxist ideology is is a belief of historical history as as a uh, a force that can move forward. Now that might sound ridiculous, but of course history is moving forward. However, I mean that specifically in the sense that history can have a sense of progression, that we can raise class consciousness, that we're moving forward. Um, you're, I mean, we are probably all, this is something that's really a basic un- understanding that a lot of people are kind of brought up into. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case that, you know, how forces interact with the world are actually going to force it forward. Um, I think you could say that these forces interact much more randomly that they it's not that simple but um uh marxism uh one of its core ideas of how it views history comes from and i apologize again for this extremely vulgar uh, explanation of hegel's dialectic uh but you have uh, you know the forces of history move forward by um your thesis and your antithesis uh creating a synthesis meaning a thesis one force of history interacting with the antithesis or antithesis um, you know, a reactionary force, and those two things producing the synthesis, which by which history moves forward. Um, but an underlying uh, understanding of that is that this, what we move forward, is in some way a reaction to these features. Whereas we have, you know, this so many decades onward, instead of a view of history which is so fundamental to the to Marxist um, to Marxist uh, readings of history that history can move forward. This understanding fundamentally puts the brakes on the possibility of historical development because these forces are not interacting they are simply coexisting and they are just languishing languishing together really yeah i think that it's something that kind of comes out of the stagnation period which is roughly when this is kind of being conceptualized and you know thought about just like you said a a stable time for the soviet union but not a necessarily productive time mm-hmm. uh they're getting lapped by other countries and you know just basic necessities consumer goods things like this and so uh, while it might be politically stable it's just not you, right you don't have that sense of we're moving forward which you did previously uh, you don't have a huge like rebuilding you don't have you're not like electrifying your country you don't have <laughs> those sort of things that are really clear and easy to point to yeah, I think uh, for for uh, an example outside of literature, I, th- I talk about this book a little too much, but it's really a fascinating read. Uh, whatever you think of the author, and I do think some bad things about the author. Uh, he- this the Russians by Hedwig Smith, this this American journalist who goes to the Soviet Union just to interview people, say, "Hey, wh- what's going on? What's your life like?" And people's concerns in this era in the late seventies are, like you say, very much about like. Uh, I wish I could just get, you know, I, I wish I had my ability. I've got money. I've got housing. My life is stable. <laughs> I buy what I can, but there's, you know, oftentimes I don't have, there's not that much to buy or like, what is my day-to-day problem? Well, childcare, uh, you know, this, these old childcare personally for me, it's not enough. Uh, but also for like a lot of women that the expectation of being a full-time homemaker, but also having a full-time job, right? You've got this, the, this push to get women educated, to get women into to work, which is great. However, there's no cultural component, which is like, hey, um, men, maybe you should also do some housework or maybe you should take care of your kids. 
uh, that is still fully an expectation which primarily rely falls on women and so they express this you know this anxiety of the fact that there's an expectation for them to go and get a career which they you know is like that's fine but just like I wish there was more help considering that cult you know that, that I also am expected to do all these other things now Hedrick Smith goes on and then goes off on a really weird tangent of like this is why the Soviets need to be like put women in the home uh, part of the reason why I don't think that highly of what is his thoughts <laughs> on it but like that is that's the day-to-day concerns of people here not as you say Matt not electrifying the country not these grand projects not building class consciousness uh not fighting the revanches but like I would like some more childcare, please to go along with my full-time job yeah, the ideological component is almost completely lacking by this point, and I think that's what makes the performance, the play, so kind of silly mm-hmm. and just, like, uh, not... So not the point when the political instructor, when he gets up to tell everybody ab- about the play, that, that you know, that that's what they're going to be doing, and he ends by saying, are there any questions? And somebody says, a ton of questions. Yeah, Want to hear... Where's all the cleaning soap gone to? Why are the warm leg wrapping? Where are the warm leg wrappings that were promised? Why is this the third month? No films have been shown. Are they or are they not going to give work gloves to the branch cutters? Want more? What is the outhouse going to be put up in the locking sector? <laughs> um, and so you have right this this clash of the great ideological play, but it, without really being able to address any basic uh, even basic concerns even addressing things like cleanliness Mm -hmm. uh, for instance Uh, that's like a real base level concern right yeah i mean films hey sure what are you gonna do but you know soap so (laughs) right yeah i don't know if i have too much more to say about i feel like we've kind of hit on all the major points just i will say Dolatov as a writer i mentioned before um that he really focuses on these individual character details and i I think that's uh one of the things i really enjoyed about reading this is also just getting the day-to-day of the camp one very early scene which still sticks with me is when the the guards just like walking through the camp and he's like i don't kind of scared <laughs> walk around at night because like the prisoners are just like hanging out he's a little brave but he's like no i want to show i'm tough so i'm going to walk around to show that i'm not scared of these guys that i'm extremely scared of yeah um and as he's walking around he stops and notices this group of, of prisoners of zex uh who are drinking who are chafir drinkers and then he goes and talk about how you know they they um would fill a soldier's mug with water and you know tea loose tea and then they lower a razor blade attached to a long steel wire into the cup then throw that onto a high voltage wire to boil it within seconds and which event ends up having an effect like alcohol and people you know start to act a little intoxicated after drinking it um just details like that of of um just what do people do for fun drink no alcohol or small amounts of alcohol we're gonna find something new we're gonna be really inventive here because we got no other options and just that granularity of of how they make this tea of 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 how this character who is a gay man is treated of how this office worker who works around these prisoners and almost sees herself as one of them in a weird way right taking on their you know dressing nicer than them obviously but hanging out with them talking to them uh taking on their slang you know these these small granularities these peculiar features um that are obviously come from someone who was there (laughs) uh just uh, this this great sense of creating this world beyond just the 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 ideological implications just uh his extremely extreme uh extremely good or interesting portrayal of, of peculiar individuals. 
I think kind of what you're getting at in a lot of ways is that it, it's almost rehumanizing uh, the individuals that were in the camps. And the sort of absurdity of it all, I think, in a lot of ways helps do that. Uh, it sort of doesn't just allow you to read them as a character in a novel, but it sort of probes you to think a little bit deeper about like what it means to exist in that environment. Yeah. And it, it kind of further defamiliarizes that experience because you're not just here reading about like uh, horror after horror and the way people were, you know, beaten down and starved and, you know, all of these horrible things, which of course did happen, but it, it's sort of a, it's almost like a, a different level of horror, this like absurd horror of, of like banal existence, which is, yeah. um, you know, also terrible. Just trying to figure out how to make it by. But yeah, no, I, I think I think you're correct that this this humanization of two of these characters who are, um, right? They're not just they're not simply petty criminals. They're they're, they're their own people. Some, but for better or for worse, right? <laughs> some of them are better. Some of them are worse. You know, Gurin is extremely funny. Um, he the the narrator seems to get along well. You know, they they chat. He tells funny stories. Um, the narrator goes out of his way to kind of be, you know, like I said, lets him go out in the woods by himself, use the restroom, gives him some food, whatever. Yeah, I think I think that you characterized that correctly. Well, I don't remember if you actually said this, but this conversation with Green, where he's talking, uh, and he's saying that the reason that he keeps getting that he keeps getting chosen for these uh, theater productions are because somebody, uh, right, the interrogator as a joke wrote down that he was an actor uh, when they sent him away. And that stayed on, on his record permanently. And <laughs> right. he says, well, it's not that hard. I guess I'll do it. It beats working. Uh, and right. so he gets carted around to be <laughs> like an actor in these little productions. And he's like, well, yeah, why not? It's better than, uh, you know, it's better than hauling logs. So I guess I'll do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a, maybe there's something to be said about having your entire existence dictated by an administrative mistake. Yeah. I mean, hey. Sounds like higher education to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I can I get you a shirt or a mug that says <laughs> my existence wasn't an administrative mistake? <laughs> yeah. Well, not at this level, but yeah. Um, <laughs> right. There is also this really great line, I think, that right illustrates this point from this article that I was talking about on these two sort of split norms. And... Uh, it's between the the political instructor and uh, Tsurikov, one of the actors in the play, and the political instructor is just going, he's going on and on and on about Stanislavski and transforming, and you know he's giving this like uh, theatrical acting theory, which of course, right? These people are just <laughs> they're just looking for some time off from work. They don't want to do hard labor, so they're willing to participate in this play. <laughs> right. uh, but he keeps going on and on and on about Stanislavski because he thinks. That you know, he really believes in the idea that it's going to transform them into into better communists or or something, and he doesn't find their acting believable because they're not actors, and they don't really want to be there. So he says, you know what Stanislavski would say if he saw you know this sort of performance, he would say, I don't believe it. If an actor read a line in a phony way, Stanislavski would stop the rehearsal and say, I don't believe it. Like the cops, Surkov said. What? The primary um, or the political instructor didn't understand. The cops, I said, give you the same line. 
I don't believe it. I don't believe it. They nabbed me once in Rostov and the investigator was a real pig. And it's sort of like you can see like a lot of the humor is from this like breakdown in communication between the two where they're like, you know, they're working on something, but they're talking on just completely different levels. And right. that was another moment that I, I really love from this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also kind of relatedly i think that that is a very <laughs> that is a, both a funny section also a good illustration of your point um relatedly the narrator's position too as a mere observer mm-hmm. um is fascinating because like his he's the assistant director does he do anything no he just stands there and watches it's just like Goody and he's like that's better than actually better than freezing out in the taiga while i watch prisoners so sure um yeah but the narr you know the narrator himself is also not a communist um when I say that, I mean he's not a member of the party. You know, the the you know, the political instructor is like, oh, it would be good for you to be the assistant director. You need to raise your political consciousness. Uh, you know, and the guy goes, but I'm not a member of the party. Why should I give a shit? <laughs> and the guy's like, well, that's exactly why. And then he's like, well, again, better than being out in the taiga. So sure. <laughs> so think- you've got you know a character who's not a communist talking to another character who's not a communist, trying to raise class consciousness among a crowd of people who are also not communists. Right. Right. It's it's a good situation, right? Right. <laughs> I think, um, and not to drag us back too far, but this this idea of Stanislavski is particularly interesting. And of course, he's just chosen because he's uh, well known. Like, right, his method is well known, um, used in the early Soviet Union extensively. And what I found interesting, though, is that the basis of his method really involves being able to step into right another character another persona and really understand like the psychological implications of like being someone else essentially uh to the point that you understand how they would be reacting to like the smallest daily like minutia basically and it's just like so funny that that's what the political instructor wants yet nobody in the story like can can see from anyone else's point of view right um of course like the the prisoners in the camp like they can see through the falseness right that this ideological uh veneer right but the the political instructor who so loves his stanislavski right he doesn't see (laughs) he doesn't see the absurdity of what he himself is is perpetrating what he's continuing to do right so that's i I thought i thought it was an interesting choice it probably doesn't mean that much but i thought it was no i I think i I think it is i mean you know considering that dovlasov was raised in a you know a theater family i i I can't help but feel that 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 was absolutely not an accidental choice perhaps 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 i have the key to understanding (laughs) perhaps only you can lead us to true to true understanding (laughs) here um (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think that's all I had to say. Just fascinating reading. I do want to read the rest of, of The Zone. I'm really quite curious, especially in comparison to Shalomov's work. As someone who's like, I, I as on a personal level, persistently felt like I've lived in an era after, after what? I don't know, but like, you know, in the era of just like, well, we're here now. Uh, it's it's a strangely, obviously, extremely, extremely different environments, but a basic perspective, which I find appealingly uh interesting mm-hmm. like not quite as absurd as absurd as like some late like ext- like right before the fall of soviet union where you start getting to like you know moscow patushki or life with an idiot levels of absurdity not quite that far but just aware of the contradictions of, of the time and and um 
failed promises the time you live in it's mm-hmm. it's a compelling perspective yeah we also i wanted to read more i mean we both wanted to read more late soviet mm-hmm. literature because we've been we haven't really done a lot on the podcast a part of it just being like it's harder to tell what to read and there's not as much written about it a lot of it is still written in russian and so that's fine for some stuff but it's also you know we like to cover things that are written in english so that if people listening want to go ahead and find them and read them they can right people want us to cover more like uh, some more niche things but it's kind of always a balancing act yes so, and this one may or may not be niche, but we think it is, but I don't know. New Yorkers, maybe we've had a different perspective on Dovlatov. <laughs> yeah. It's not just like the story itself, but like the, then the things written about the story. There's, there's definitely plenty in English, but there's also like a lot more in Russian. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is how it tends to go for more recent literature. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. It does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, but. This is the sort of stuff we'd love to keep covering. All right, Matt, before we completely wrap up, I got to ask, you know, speaking of late Soviet literature, what are we tackling next week? Next week, we're going to be going back in time. We're going to be tackling Tolstoy's The Kreutzer Sonata. The Kreutzer Sonata famously uh, was a Dr. Caitlin Shirley's favorite novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we got another doctor joining this week. We're joined by Professor Tatiana Gershkovich, who is an expert on uh, Tolstoy's sort of late ideology it's super interesting we've already recorded it uh we're gonna be talking about <laughs> suspicious reading a little bit about nabokov and extremely uncomfortable train rides if you are planning on reading along with us be sure to pick up your copy through our affiliate links on our website yeah like matt mentioned we've already recorded this and uh for some of you who are familiar with the Kreutzer sonata you might be a little bit like why are we talking about it but it Dr. Grishkovich did it has really brought me around on on the Kreutzer Sonata before I was very much in that stance, but now I think um, obviously not reading uh, not reading it as a straightforward piece, but very interesting to talk about and consider. Um, and I, I came away with uh, some new perspectives and thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. So I am extremely excited for all of you to listen to our chat with her. To help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters who na- whose names will be said here. <laughs> yes, and that's my, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, and Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pakrob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peramotka. You can find more of this stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. Links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon.